thank you, Lord. We depend on you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. 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 Please take your seats. I'm going to, I'm guessing this microphone. It should be, but it's not. So I'm going to. Two, one, two. Oh, oh, there we go. It's working. Thanks, Nick. <laughs> kind of feeble rounds of applause for Nick. It was okay, but not that great. <laughs> Control, alt, delete. Well, hello, everybody. My name is Glenn. If this is your first time, uh, we are not particularly slick and professional, as you can see, but we're very happy that uh, you're here. And Happy New Year. Uh, I'm just going to pull this a little bit closer so people online can see this. And, uh, and if you are watching online, we give you a special, uh, special welcome. Thanks, Nick. You're the best. Okay. Yeah. There we go. That's better. That's what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, it's an exciting day. It's a new year, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to starting a new series with you. Um, it's a series that we're calling FAQ 2. Uh, if you were around in 2018, I did a, a similar series asking some questions that people might have uh, that level against Christianity, and, uh, and I'm excited to share some of these things with you because these are really important questions to ask as Christians and as people who are just thinking about Christianity or actually have some real, uh, real important questions to ask, like, uh, can we trust the Bible? What about science? What about all evil and suffering? How do we know that God exists? How do you know that Jesus is actually the Son of God? All these questions are important, and Christian friend, we must not avoid them. Uh, really, really important. So I want to start by reading some scripture. Normally we would stand as we read scripture just to honor the Bible and the Word of God, but you can stay relaxed and uh, I will read it to you. Uh, this is from Luke chapter 24. This was after Jesus had died and rose again according to the scriptures and, uh, and this is what's happened just after. That very day, two of them were going to a village called, named Emmaus. Two of them were two disciples, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, called Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, 
And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And we thank God for his word. So when I was, uh, when I was 18 and I was at university, um, I got a job in a local clothing store. It would be like a little bit like American Eagle, kind of a cross between RW and American Eagle. So we sold suits, but jeans and t-shirts and everything else. And I was there for the whole time that I went through university. And then Sarah and I got married uh, when I was at university and she was just finished. So she was able to keep me in the manner that I was accustomed Uh, as long as I worked eight hours on a Saturday. Um, and so I worked uh, on a Saturday at uh, this shop. It was called Burton's. Those of you who are British probably remember Burton's. And, uh, and I was just kind of on the floor tidying clothes. But the manager said to me on the first day, you need to look out for shoplifters. That was it. I'm like, oh, I am all about that. Like I come from a long line of very suspicious people. My father uh, was a high-ranking police officer, and I just have this in me that basically, I'm going to assume that you're a criminal, you have to prove to me that you're not, with everybody who came through the front door, which is a really welcoming experience. <laughs> so I was, I was there, I was on the shop floor, and I tell you, I caught so many shoplifters. Sarah will tell you, I used to come home, I'd be excited, especially if I got to literally chase them through the town center, rugby tackling them and drag them to the police station. Happened many times. It was the best. It was brilliant. I loved it. It's the only way that I managed to actually get through my time at, uh, at Burton's was because I just like, I'm assuming that you are a shoplifter. I'm not somebody who is easily convinced. I'm not somebody who naturally just takes life as it is. I'm incredibly skeptical. I'm, not an, I'm, I'm a reasonably intelligent person. I have my degree, I'm a teacher, and then I took my master's. I've done a lot of reading, uh, and both of those weren't in theology. I never went to seminary, and some of you will go, well, you can tell. Um, I never went to seminary. I was an apprentice with a pastor for many years, uh, but I was a teacher, and I went into administration. I've run businesses. I'm not somebody who just absorbs information on face value. I'm suspicious. I want evidence. And yet here I am preaching to you about the Word of God, the Bible, about Jesus, the Son of God, and I've had the privilege of being able to do that all around the world since the age of 19. So how is it that I can, especially if you are here this morning, and I want to suggest that perhaps not all of you are sold as Christians. Maybe you're a Christian who actually still has some significant questions and doubts. Maybe you're somebody who knows a Christian and you're interested in Christianity, but you've never made that step to say, I want to become a Jesus follower. I'm committing my life to him and his teaching. You're not quite there yet. Maybe you're a Christian who's just completely sold out, doesn't need any evidence really. It's just kind of this beautiful spirit of just like, I'm in. I don't need to know all the ins and outs. You might be anywhere on that spectrum. This series is for you. These disciples doubted. Jesus pointed it out. 
You're slow to believe. You're slow to believe what the prophets have spoken in the Bible. See, being skeptical and being a doubter is not a new thing. In fact, doubting is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. What amazes me is these disciples had spent time with Jesus, and yet they still doubted. One of my favorite passages in the Bible ends with this verse. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. This was after they had seen Jesus hanging on a cross that you all know, I hope, is one of the most excruciating ways to die. He's had a spear stuck in his side. They'd just seen all that, and yet he showed himself, as you'll see in a few minutes, to hundreds of people, but some still doubted. It's crazy to me. How can you doubt when you just saw him die on a cross and he stood there chatting with you and making you breakfast? That's what the New Testament says. How is that possible? Doubting's not a new thing. And I'm very aware, and please hear me in this, I'm very aware it doesn't matter how convincing I am this morning or over the next five weeks. It doesn't matter how great my arguments are to point you towards God. It doesn't matter. Because the scripture shows us that I could bring Jesus up on stage and some of you would still doubt. Because these people lived with Jesus. And Christian friend, that's encouraging to me. Because remember, it's not down to you that somebody becomes a Christian. All you need to do is be faithful. But at the same time, even though, yeah, but, is my go-to phrase. Well, what about this time? Yeah, but. I'm just a contrarian. It's the way that I'm wired This series is about the yeah buts when it comes to God. Yeah, but, you know, I'm struggling with the Bible. So here's what I want uh, you to consider over the next few weeks. I want you to think about what you believe and why you believe it. That's all I'm asking. Think about what you believe and why you believe it. Understanding that your worldview is shaped by culture. It's just the air we breathe. All you need to do is wake up in the morning and be shaped by the culture that we're in. You switch your phone in, you're on, you're immediately being shaped by a voice that comes from the culture. And I'm not, uh, not going to uh, beleaguer that point. I'm not going to push that point down. It's just, it just is. Our worldviews are shaped by the media, by our family, by our education, by our experiences. All this compiled together creates this belief system that you have faith in. And I choose that word specifically, faith. You are placing faith in a worldview that you have. And all I'm asking is over the next few weeks is for you to just to think about what it is that you believe in and why you believe it. And I want to ask the question this morning is that perhaps, do you reject the Bible because it doesn't line up with your personal Western view? Somebody once said, and I'm paraphrasing, go where the evidence actually takes you, not where you want to take you. And I'm saying this to Christians as well. Don't just say, hey, well, the Bible says it, therefore I believe it. That's great, and I'm there, and you know me well enough to believe that I actually believe that. However, that's not good enough when you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible. You can't keep on drawing somebody back to a Bible they don't believe in to prove the existence of God. I mean, so educate ourselves. As Peter said, always be ready for an answer for the hope that is within you. Be ready. So here's what I want to suggest over the next few weeks, is if this is your first time, please come back. Come back for the next five weeks at least. Don't just come one week. Come back over the next few weeks and listen to some of the things that we're going to share with you. Join a community group. Start reading the Bible. Talk to people around you you know 
believe in Jesus. Don't just kind of go, mm, like you watch a YouTube video for 10 minutes and make a decision. Don't just come and listen to one sermon and make a decision. Come and, come and hear some of the questions and the thoughts and the answers. And I have to say, and I confess this, that if you've been around Willow Park Church long enough, and I've been pastor here for, I think this is our 13th year, I love taking a Bible passage and going through it. That is not what this series is about. This series, I want to make sure, doesn't feel like a lecture, but there's going to be quite a lot of information that I want to give to you with a big so what applied to it. So the Bible is true, so what? Do you believe the Bible is true, so what? But the most widely held problem that people have, and research shows us this with Christianity, is indeed the Bible. And there's no question that this book is magnificent. This book has been read by more people than any other book that has ever been written still to this day. This book still sells more copies every year than any other book in the world still today and all through history. It's the number one best-selling book, period. More, uh, there's never been anything where more movies and songs and poetry and, uh, and stories and artwork based on than the Bible. It's been translated and published into more languages than any other book. It has withstood vicious attacks by more enemies than any other book. It was written over a 1,500-year time span by over 40 authors. Kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, shepherds, soldiers, poets, statesmen, statesmen scholars, all resonating with the same story in harmony and continuity, all outlining one unfolding story, all these different books, all pointing to the same story. I saw this this week, um, and I have given the, uh, I've, I've given the place you can find it. This diagram, some of you might have seen this before. Each of these lines represents a verse in the Bible. So there's thousands of lines, and the longer the lines are the verses that are quoted the most times by other verses. So the Bible really was the first hyperlinked document in history, because what the lines are is showing where they link. So the verse here links to a verse back here, and these verses link back to here. And all the verses moving this way you can make sense of. You say, well, they're just quoting verses that they knew existed. No big deal. It's the verses that are pointing towards events that have happened over here that is remarkable. 40 authors over 1,500 years. And you could go, well, that's great. That's pretty impressive, but I still don't believe it. I still don't believe in the message. Can we trust it? Can we trust what it says? Can we trust what it says about God and Jesus and me? And what I need to do in order to have a relationship and to live my life in a way that I've been designed to live. Can I trust it? See, my goal is not to try and convince you this morning, my friend. My goal is for you to join millions and millions of people throughout history who have been inspired. And my goal is to inspire you to read it. Christians, you should be reading this every day. No excuse. Yeah, but. No, there's no but. Christian friend, you should be absorbing yourself in the Bible in every possible way because this is the Word of God. For those who are not there yet, I want you just to consider it, think about it, read it, maybe choose Mark and start working through the book of Mark, but all with the question of what difference does it make anyway? So the Bible's true. What difference does it make to me in Kelowna in my mid-20s trying to navigate life 
Like life is, I saw this this week, although it was quite funny, that life is like a, a big chess game and I can't play chess. You know, what difference does it make? Well, honestly, six words. What if it's true? What if it's all true? What if everything the Bible says is true and you're going, eh? That would be lunacy to ignore it. So you at least need to consider it. If there's the slightest possibility that what the Bible says is true, that this overarching story that we'll come to in a second is true, it would be lunacy to disregard this eternal, life-changing book because it has eternal and life-changing consequences. In fact, John himself, one of the gospel writers, said this about the Bible. He said, these things are written, specifically his own writing, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Son of God, and that you, by believing, may have life in his name. See, the Bible is about giving you life through belief in Jesus Christ. That's it. You want to know what the Bible's about? That's it. All the stories point to the truth of this verse. And as I said, I could give you some really clever and impressive reasons why you should believe the Bible, but the best evidence of the truth of the Bible is this. You might not want to literally do this, but look around the room. You're going to see people with different backgrounds, different nationalities, different experiences, different socioeconomic statuses, different political views. You're going to, you will never get such an eclectic group of people all meeting in one room. But the reason is, is because there's transformation. The greatest evidence that the Bible is true and real is transformed lives. It's transformed lives. And you might disagree with that. Yeah, you know, we're in January, and of course the gyms are filling up. Those of you go regularly. Notice I said those of you. (laughs) Go go regularly will have noticed that the population of the gym has gone up. That people kind of go in day one. And you know what, though? If you commit maybe 12 weeks to going to the gym three or four times a week and you start being careful with what you eat, something happens to you. You start getting transformed. Those pieces of clothes in your, pieces of clothing in your closet that you refused to throw out because <laughs> they were too tight, suddenly they're within reach. It's transformation. It's transformation that you cannot... Disregard. If you actually do something, then you get transformed. So I want to say to you as simple as this. If you believe in the Bible and you read it and you apply what it says and you believe what it says, then there is transformation. And everybody who's a Jesus follower in this room would say amen. But surely we have to question the Bible's empirical evidence, consistency, and moral teachings. I'm not approaching this in a blind way. Remember, I've chased down and wrestled and rugby tackled and dragged into the police station truth my whole life. So you're saying, Glenn, we just need to say yes on on face value. Do we have to question it? Yes. You might be surprised as a pastor that I'm saying that. 100% question it. I got no problem with you questioning it. God's not no problem questioning it. A good Christian has no problem with you questioning it, but I want you to question it in a certain way. Go where the evidence takes you, not where you want the evidence to take you, and be a friendly skeptic. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Don't be an angry skeptic. I'm so angry at the God I don't believe in. Just be open. Just be open. Yeah, but Glenn, the Bible is historically unreliable. The Bible is full of mistakes and contradictions. 
The Bible is offensive, outdated, and culturally irrelevant. I could go on, but these are the three things I would say in our culture, the three most pertinent questions. So let's hit them, and we're going to hit them really quickly. So if you're taking notes, you might want to read this back. You can, uh, I, I'm going to go pretty quickly. Let's go for the first one. The Bible is historically unreliable. This is from Richard Dawkins from The Godded Delusion, a well-known atheist. Um, nobody knows who the four evangelists were, but they were almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction. That would be a view of many people in our culture. And so it's something that we as Christians need to say, okay, well, let's look at that. The first thing I would say is, what is the weight of thought versus one or two ideas? What is the weight of of academic thought towards the Bible rather than one or two people who are making a lot of money out of reading book, uh, writing books? I think that's okay to ask that question. So I want to say to you very briefly, there are three reasons why Christian and secular scholars, Christian and secular scholars, trust the Bible. Number one, it's the age of the writing. The age of the writing. It is universally agreed, even by the most liberal of scholars, that the time difference between the events and writing makes the Bible one of the most reliable historical documents in existence. I'll let you read that again while I just dry my throat. So Christians and scholars saying the Bible is one of the most reliable historical documents in existence. Even a quick search on Google will show you that. The four Gospels especially were written between 40 and 60 years after Jesus' death. Paul's letters, which is two-thirds of, uh, of the New Testament, were written between 5 and 25 years after Jesus' death. And one of the key things to understand, friends, is this, and the Bible says this about itself in Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of these things that have been fulfilled among us. This is Luke, who was a doctor, writing this. Just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. This is the, this is the secret source of, uh, when it comes to the age and the reliability of the Bible. It's the Bible's claim that there were eyewitnesses. And these eyewitnesses actually named in the New Testament... Paul would say there's, there's 500 people who saw Jesus raised from the dead. Go talk to them. Go talk to them if you don't believe me. Go, go see what they said. So really making claims that contradict the eyewitness accounts of thousands of people alive at the time is foolish. What do I mean by all that? If the Bible was made up, then the naming people that they, who they knew could go, go talk to Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross. He's right over there. Go talk to the 500 people. So to make a claim knowing that there are hundreds of people who could go, yeah, that's not true, doesn't make any sense at all. Secondly, the content is counterproductive. One of the things that is leveled against the Bible quite often is this, that the Bible is carefully curated book to control and spin in order to create a movement. That it was constructed to control. If I was going to construct a Bible or a book to try and control people's thoughts towards an end that I want them to be at, then I would not have written what is in the Bible. The Bible is actually counterproductive because it points out that actually, it's done a horrible job of trying to convince you. What I mean by that is this. If I was going to say that Jesus is the Son of God, 
then I wouldn't have included that he was crying in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking his dad, the father, if this cup could pass from him and he didn't have to die. If I was going to try and convince you, then I wouldn't include Jesus saying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it would imply that Jesus wasn't the Son of God if you didn't know the rest of the story. If I was going to try and convince you, I would not, and hear me out, I would not include women as, as witnesses. The reason being is that women at that point were culturally seen as people, if they opened their mouths, they're liars. They weren't even allowed to give testimony in court at that time. So why would I say that the women were the ones that first saw Jesus? I wouldn't put that in. It makes no sense at all. If I was going to try and carefully construct something to control, I would not paint the future leaders of the church, the apostles, as petty, disloyal, and jealous, and they were. One of them was called Doubting Thomas. I'd take all this out and try and carefully create something that tried to convince you, rather than include things that are actually counterproductive to trying to convince you that something that isn't true is, in fact, true. Finally, and there's so many different reasons that historians see the Bible as being authentic, is this. It's too detailed. This, perhaps, is one of the most convincing arguments for me. It's the style of writing is historical. It's narrative. It's, it's a reportage. It's like when you read a newspaper. Rather than just made-up fiction. And the reason we know that is because historical fiction like we have today didn't exist as a genre back then. So people with lots of letters after their name, far more smartical than me, who are actually uh, deep in ancient literature, as a, not just as a, an interest, but as their chosen profession would say and agree, that the style of the Bible is narrative and historical not fictional, made-up story, because they were, their style in which it was written didn't actually exist back then. C.S. Lewis, who was a world-class literary critic, said this, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this, the Bible. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. And that didn't happen for 1,700 more years. So the Bible is an account written by eyewitnesses in a narrative form because they saw it, that genre was not made up. And you could even go deeper and look at how the Bible was written, including little details like Jesus reclining on a cushion. That was not included in fiction at that time. There was no kind of color to any story. It was very, very functional, even the fiction. The number of fish that were caught, the, uh, the number of silver coins, all the little details that you can read through the Gospels and read it, all point to the fact that this was narrative, eyewitnesses that you could go talk to, not some elaborate lie that was put together and presented to control. So, what about the second one? The Bible is full of mistakes and contradictions. This is one of my favorites because it's so easy to dismantle this argument. And I say that respectfully. 
Again, I stand on the shoulders of people who have really examined and studied this. And by the way, this, my whole sermon really is me collating writings and sermons and, and videos of people who have studied this and, and have done a great job. I encourage you to go and, and listen and read to some of these amazing books, especially The Reason of God, uh, for God by Timothy Keller. Outstanding book, The Reason for God. You'll see a lot of this in here. The Bible is full of mistakes and contradictions. Historians tell us that the Bible is uh, one of the most reliable and credible documents from antiquity, if not the most. They would say that all these writings are historically accurate. So let me show you some of the other writings that are shown to be historically accurate. This is quite interesting. Bear with me, those of you who are not necessarily of this kind of mind. You already look, I believe in the Bible. Let's move on. Just, just stick with me, because I know there are people in the room that, that uh, this, this is important. Um, Thucydides, classic um, book. There was eight copies, 1,300 years, written 1,300 years after the events. That is seen as credible by historians. Aristotle's Poetics, there's five copies, and they were written 1,400 years after events. You got Caesar's Gallic Wars, 12 copies, 1,000 years after he died. Why am I showing you all these? Alexander the Great, two copies, 400 years after he died. Here's my point. Is you have the Bible on one hand, and you have these other ancient literatures that the world sees as credible, historical, authentic, not a problem. All of which were written no more, no less than 400 years after the events. I've just told you the Bible was written within 60 years by eyewitnesses, and there's 5,800 copies, all written within 60 years of the events. So what you can't do is go, I'm going to okay with all these, but I'm going to reject that on the basis of historical accuracy and authenticity. There's 25,000, actually, if you include other languages. But what about all the mistakes? Bart Ehrman, in his book, said this, the New Testament copies all differ from one another in many thousands of places. And then he went on to say, there are 400 mistakes in the Bible, in his book, Misquoting Jesus. He took all the variations and multiplied them by the number of original manuscripts. So what he actually did is he took the mistakes or contradictions, and then he took all the different copies, and he multiplied them together and came up with 400,000 mistakes, which even in his approach to it doesn't make sense. In fact, one other writer, Craig Blomberg, said if we applied the same principle to Bart Ehrman's one book, there were 1.6 million errors in his book. But what about all the other variations? You could all tell me, well, well, there's contradictions or there's variations. You only need to look at different Bibles to see that. Well, there's 5,800 ancient copies of the original Greek New Testament. You have to understand that they didn't copy in a way that you and I might copy when we were taking our exams. I mean, not me, obviously, some of you. You know, you're not like looking over and going, oh. Right. There would be three scholars involved in one copy. One scholar was writing. There was two other scholars looking over their shoulder to make sure that what they were copying was correct. But still, there was 10,000 variants. But of those 10,000 variants, all but 400 are spelling variants. Thou shalt 
pretty big mistake there. Read it. Thou shalt commit adultery as being one of God's Ten Commandments. Well, obviously, that's a spelling. It's a typo. We've all done it. Have you had that mistake when you've sent a text and you've gone, <gasps> shouldn't have done that? There's spelling mistakes. Of the 10,000 variants, there's 400 spelling mistakes. Of those 400, all 40 are just sentence word orders. We are saved by Jesus Christ, our Lord, versus we are saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. So it doesn't actually change the meaning of the verse at all. He goes on, there's 30 that change the sense of the passage in past, present, or future sense. And the number of variants where something theologically is at stake is zero. So out of 5,800 ancient copies of the Bible, zero actually have any impact at all on what it's trying to communicate. In fact, Bart Ehrman, who came up with the 400,000 mistakes, he admits, even though he said this in many thousands of places, he also goes on to say this, the essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants of the manuscript tradition in the New Testament. So he agrees that even though there were mistakes, they're not mistakes that actually affect the Bible. Okay, let's get to the big one. Because you might be okay with the historical fact. You might be okay with the authenticity. You might be okay with all that. But what you're not okay with is that the Bible is offensive, outdated, and culturally irrelevant. This is a biggie. This to you might be the reasonable reasons why you reject the Bible. So let me suggest a couple of things to you. Let me suggest to you that your view our view as a culture changes all the time depending on the cultural moment that we live in. Let me give you some examples. Smoking. I was just at the end as a teenager in the 80s where smoking was still kind of cool. But I know in the 50s and 60s, doctors were saying, hey, you should smoke if you want to have better lungs. You know, and then suddenly all these, these cancer uh, um, cases were happening. They started adding the dots. And now, 2023, I think that everybody understands that smoking is horribly bad for you in every case. But culture changes depending on our cultural moment. Tattoos. The times I used to get asked by young people when I was a youth and young adult pastor, uh, I really want a tattoo. And that's when tattoos were still kind of taboo. And they'd go, oh, I really want a tattoo. And, but my mom and dad said, no. And i go, listen, i got a great verse for you. You could go home and you could just like, what about that, mom and dad? got a great verse for you. And they'd lean in. And I'd go, you ready? You're going to write it down? I used to do this at KCS. Because I asked all the time. Here's the verse. Honor your mother and father if you want life to be long and good for you. And they'd go, God. That's not the verse I wanted. Well, go honor your mum and dad. When you're old enough, you want to go get a tattoo? Well, that's up to you. Mum and dad might not be happy about it, but t tattoos, even 20, 30 years ago, had a different cultural view than they do now. Those are two simple ways to show that our cultural moment shifts. Our views as a culture shift all the time. It used to be, when it came to sex, is that you wait and sex and anything attached to the act of sex was kept to marriage. No question. Not so much today. Relationships, it used to be that living together was called living in sin. Because you're not married. 
Not so much today. And that's not just for Christians, by the way. That was just a cultural thought. You don't live together, and you don't have sex before marriage. We've moved on. I'm not saying for the better, by the way. Just saying we've moved on. Gender roles. It used to be that, you know, it was expected that the, the, the wife of the family would stay at home and look after the kids. Even saying that is making some of you upset. Because our cultural moment has changed. And we get to gender roles. Which I've said, and then we've got gender. It used to be there was male and female. Now, according to some, you can choose to be whatever you want. Our cultural moments change. Can we all accept that? Can I say to you, if you're a Gen Z or a millennial, especially Gen Z, just, I know this might be hard for you to wrap your, around, your head around, but it might be that those things that you are willing to live and die on, belief in po- politics and, and social view and, and gender view and all these other views that you might have, can I almost guarantee you in 50 years' time, your grandkids are going to look at you and go, oh, what? I can't believe you believe that. It's only going to be 50 years and you're going to look like the idiot that you think some of us are. And I hope that I'm around long enough to see it happen to my kids. You know, when you're like, don't, don't, don't invite granddad around. That's going to be you in 50 years' time because our cultures change. What has this got to do with the Bible? Do you reject the Bible because it doesn't line up with your personal Western views of life and it offends you now? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe it does. Maybe you do reject the Bible. Do you realize that some people in our culture think that the Bible's view on purity and sex is outdated? I know that might shock you. The idea that you stay a virgin until you're married, outdated. That you should be married before you have sex, outdated. Culturally irrelevant, offensive. Do you know that if you go to another part of the world today, they would say that the rules in the Bible are not strong enough when it comes to sex. Like we really love some of them. Keller does this a great job of elaborating this in his book, The Reason for God. He, he points out that our idea of loving our enemies, that sounds great, but you go to another part of the world right now and suggest that to them, they would think that is as offensive as the way some people believe the Bible suggests uh, purity is offensive. So maybe we shouldn't get tied up in our cultural moment. Maybe it doesn't teach what you think it teaches. See, the Bible often explains something without endorsing it as God's best. So, Bible teaches polygamy, some people would say. Does it? Well, you look at how many wives Solomon had. Yeah, but does it say that that was God's best? Does it say that that was a good thing? How did it work out for them all? Not well. Bible's sexist. Actually, you read the Bible, you'll find that Jesus and the gospel and Christianity does an amazing job of making everybody the same. Different roles, but everybody equal. The Bible actually overturns patriarchy. What about this big one? This one is always quoted. Slaves. Do your research. Does it actually teach what you think it teaches? See, North American viewpoint of slaves is very different from the Middle Eastern viewpoint of ancient Israel. 
See, slaves, at that point, it was more, and I quote, indentured servanthood. What that meant was, in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, New World slavery, which is race-based, which is horrific, that Christians were actually the ones that started overturning, is not the slavery that the Bible talks about. The slaves in the Bible looked like everybody else. They dressed the same as everybody else. They got paid as well as everyone else. They had responsibilities just like everybody else. And most of the time, bought themselves out of slavery. They were mainly paying something off, indentured servanthood. So, when you read the Bible, you might think that something is really offensive, but perhaps you're reading it through your cultural blinders. Or, and I say this lovingly, perhaps you've not actually read it. So, let's pull all this together. The so what. Great. So what? The Bible's true. I want to suggest that really when it comes to the Bible, you need to deal with the main things first. What's the main thing in the Bible? Not the, oh, I don't agree with this bit. Because maybe, and again, Keller does a great job of talking about this. Maybe, just bear with me, I might just be a shock. It was a shock to me when I realized. Maybe if there's a God, and I believe there is, maybe he doesn't agree with everything that you think. Maybe he's going to challenge you on some things. So what we need to know is what is the main thing that the Bible is teaching. Does everybody recognize that? Starry, starry night. Beautiful, beautiful, world-renowned, magnificent painting. Painted by? I only said that because I forgot. (laughs) Say it a bit louder. Thank you, Van Gogh. I knew that. Painted by Van Gogh. And he produced something that is magnificent. It's culturally renowned. It's incredible. It's historical. It's accurate. The original one you can go and see. It's the original. It displays love and beauty and it has an intricacy that is breathtaking. And you come along and you go, yeah, but I don't like that bit. That bit there really offends me. That, well, I can, yeah. But this, I'm not even going to consider all this because this little bit here really upsets me. Can you see my point? Imagine this is the Bible in all its beauty and magnificent and ancient and just amazing story that's trying to present. And you reject the whole main story because there's one element that you find difficult and you don't agree with in your cultural moment. So, what is the story? What is the painting? The Bible's painting is all about Jesus. This is what Jesus said in the verses we read at the beginning. He said, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Every aspect of the Bible, every verse, every chapter, points in some way to Jesus. All of it. Jesus himself said, he looked at all the Old Testament and he said, let me show you how it's connected with my death and resurrection. And he starts at Moses and he walks through. You see, the whole story of the Bible is about God's love and freedom found in Jesus. It's not, it's not about you and your thoughts and your cultural ideas or what offends you. 
The Bible has never been. The Bible never presents itself as some kind of roadmap for life. Now, I know you may have heard that it is, and in some way, it's really, it's very, very helpful for life, of course, but the primary story is not to help you do better at the game of chess that you can't play. The main story is that Jesus is the representation of God's love and freedom that is a gift to you, that will radically change your life, because that's why I come full circle when I say the Bible will transform you. See, life can be crushing, but Jesus was crushed on the cross. Life can be crushing, disappointing, and a wrestle. You might know that there's something more. Let me tell you, the more is the love and freedom found in Jesus, which is why me, as being somebody who's so skeptical and I have a yeah, but as a banner over my life, can say, okay, I might struggle with different aspects of what the Bible says, but I'm going to dig into it and find out what it really says. And what I actually find out ultimately is it's about love and freedom found in Jesus. David and Goliath is not about you being able to have the ability to face the giants in your life. It's not about you. What it's actually about is that Jesus was the David that killed the Goliath, the sin in your life, and he's the one that gets the victory for you. It's about Jesus, not you. And so when you start approaching the Bible in that way, the Bible suddenly opens up to being something that actually points to Jesus that ultimately brings love and freedom found in Jesus. Here's one thing I know by experience. The more I read the Bible, the more invigorated I am in my life and in my spirit. The less I read the Bible, the more doubtful and confused and anxious I become. There is power in these verses. There is power in these stories. And as you read it, you will be transformed. And all the yeah but slowly diminish and get replaced by a God who loves, who chases, who pursues, who loves, who is passionate enough ultimately to go to the cross and to take the punishment that you and I know deep down inside truly deserve. And rather than looking at one corner of the Bible, look at the main story. And the main story is that Jesus loves you. And that's why after 30 some years I can stand up here and be passionate about the Bible, unapologetic, because it transforms lives. So here's my challenge for you. This week, 16 chapters, the book of Mark, read it. Take your time. You could read it in one sitting, but take your time, read through the book of Mark, and see what it says to you. Listen to the whisper of God. Listen to the story of a man called Jesus. Next week, because I've just given you a bit of a glimpse, we're going to talk about whether God exists. That there are clues all around to the existence of God. In science, we're starting to walk towards the science question. But this week, I want you to consider that the Bible is true. It's transformational. It changes lives in a way that no other instrument, if I can put it that way, ever has in history. So let's not throw it out because of our cultural moment. Let's just take a moment and think, does Jesus really love me? See, what we do now is we come to communion as we're taking our, taking our worship, and I know I've been a little bit longer this 
week. I knew I would be. There's so much more I could say. But we're going to take communion. We're also going to have uh, the Lintels and the Duncans up here. They're going to be available for anybody to have prayer. It's a new year. Might be a lovely thing to do as part of our sharing communion together to come and also receive some prayer. So they're going to be making themselves available at the front as well. So as we worship, if you love Jesus and you are a Jesus follower and you want Jesus to reign in your life, then the Bible says that you are welcome to come and take the bread and the wine that represents Jesus' body and his blood, his blood shed, his body broken. Come take it as a sign of your belief and remembering what he has done for you, remembering what the whole story of the Bible is about. But the Bible also says that if you are not a Jesus follower, he lovingly says you are not welcome. You need to examine yourself. But the beautiful thing is, all it takes is prayer and confession and asking the Lord to change your life, to see that he is Lord, to believe in him and the death on the cross. And then you are welcome at the table. So let's, uh, worship team, why don't you come on up? Let's um, worship together. So a couple of instructions. Just as we worship, then you are welcome to come at any time and take of the elements. You can take it back to your seat and take the bread and the juice in your own time. That's lovely. And you, you might want to come and get some prayer as well at any time in our worship time. Why don't we stand together? Let's pray. I wonder whether we need the tables, but I don't know. Whatever you think. Heavenly Father.